Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for taking the time to join us today. My name is Natalia Yankovich, and I'm a fixed income investment specialist here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. To kick off the 2021 weekly call series, I'm pleased to introduce my colleague, Bob Michael, Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Group. Over the next hour, we'll shed some light on what we're seeing in fixed income markets, takeaways from our most recent investment quarterly meeting, and implications for institutional investors throughout 2021. All right, let's jump right in. The fixed income investment quarterly meeting was held recently, where our global team meets to discuss broad investment themes and set the tone for how we're investing. As we think about the current landscape, we're balancing the near-term impacts of rising infection rates and shutdowns against the longer-term optimism about a vaccine-led reopening. How did that shape the views coming out of the IQ? Well, I think that was the primary question because near-term It's the winter in the Western Hemisphere. Everyone anticipated that infection rates and deaths would go up, but the optimism on the success of the vaccines was quite high. So we had to balance that. And then ultimately, we have to decide which way the markets were going to move. And I think the one thing we accept, those of us who have been around for a long time, is that the markets are cruel and very greedy. And they're going to look through the near-term pain of higher deaths and infection rates and start pricing in the impact of the vaccine and the probability of some stimulus out of Washington. And we had met in mid-December. When we step back and look at things today, there are genuinely five very powerful drivers of U.S. growth in 2021. There's the potential of a global vaccine-led reopening, so that we knew several weeks ago. Aggressive monetary stimulus, that remains. A bit of new information was the $900 billion in additional fiscal support coming out of Congress. So that's the third big tailwind. The one thing that we were divided on was whether there would be a blue wave or not. And in fact, you ended up with the Democrats taking both Georgia Senate seats. So you've got a blue wave. And although it's a 50-50 split, so they don't quite have the votes for the rule of 60 to pass legislation, what they do have is the budget reconciliation process. And they get two this year because the budget reconciliation process from 2020 actually, because of COVID, was pushed off to 21. So there are two opportunities for them to go back and put in additional stimulus. So that's a fourth huge tailwind. And then the fifth one is just this general acceptance of modern monetary theory, that basically treasuries could issue whatever amount of debt they needed. And rather than the markets fretting about the volume of the debt and backing up the price to absorb it, and then worrying about the impact to inflation, you have your central bank step in and buy it and control the cost of funding to the government and now across the entire borrowing spectrum. It's not something I ever imagined. (laughs) Generally, well, historically, you've had central banks pushing for fiscal austerity. 
So this is quite the other way, and I think that's the fifth very powerful tailwind. And so the question today and what we started to king into several weeks ago is, do you want to fight that? You've got these enormous drivers of growth, and we don't want to. We're embracing it, and our portfolios are positioned largely for a broadening reflation trade. So you touched upon a few points that we'll go into more detail on, and you highlighted the vaccine. How does the rollout of the vaccine impact our outlook, and what are the biggest risks that you're seeing right now? The rollout of the vaccine is something that could accelerate. And there's talk about the Democrats using the Defense Production Act to increase the production of the vaccine and then distribute it. So there are a lot of things that could accelerate the reopening. I think as it stands now, ourselves and a lot in the market are modeling herd immunity sometime over the summer. I think that's still a reasonably good scenario. And in the meantime, the central banks are likely to leave monetary policy where it is. I suppose the biggest risk to the markets is the vaccines for whatever reason, don't actually work. And I suppose that you could have a mutation of the virus. There's some of it that has come out of the UK. It's now in Japan. There's a South Africa strain. So it is a bit of a race to get the vaccine out there before the virus begins to mutate. I'd say the second risk to our outlook and to the markets is the potential for a policy error. Right now, you've got the safety nets in place around the economy. The markets are drawing off of them enormously. It's fiscal and monetary. You don't want the central banks to get rattled over the summer as things are reopening and there's a bit more growth and a bit more inflation, and they start to talk about withdrawing the accommodation that's in place. I think we saw from the taper tantrum in 2013 that that could trigger a repricing of the markets, which could be a bit damaging. So those are the two things that we need. We need the vaccines to be distributed and remain effective, and you need both fiscal and monetary policy to stay there until we're sure that the economy has transitioned to life on its own. So monetary and fiscal policy will be essential to bridge the gap until the vaccine is more widely distributed. How do you envision the Fed transitioning back to a more normal policy environment without causing massive disruption to capital markets? And in particular, how do you see the shape of the yield curve evolving over the next few years? Well, I think they're doing it now. I think they realize that they've got monetary policy at an extraordinary level of accommodation. And it's not just the zero interest rates. It's the amount of QE that's going on. They're buying $80 billion in treasuries and $40 billion in mortgages per month. That's $120 billion. Just a month or so ago, they were talking about yield curve control or to do other things that they could do to even get rates lower and help ensure the recovery when it wasn't so clear that a vaccine could be delivered and it wasn't so clear you would get fiscal stimulus. So, their bias was already leaning the other way to provide more accommodation. Now you fast forward, and this is how quickly things change in just a few weeks. You've got not only one vaccine, you've got series of vaccines rolling out. 
They're rolling out globally. You've got the deal in Washington. There's likely a lot more coming through the budget reconciliation processes. And you've got these big tailwinds, and now they're thinking, maybe we're doing a little too much. And that's what I hear when I listen to the Fed speakers this week. What I hear them say is, you know, it's not bad to think about the discussion on paper. Now, the $120 billion is a lot per month. During the peak large-scale asset purchases that the Fed was doing, QE, during the financial crisis, they were doing $85 billion a month. So they're close to 50% above those levels on an ongoing basis. I think that's got them somewhat uncomfortable, and I think they'd like to start dialing that down, but they've learned from the taper tantrum that you've got to give the market enough lead time and position it correctly, and the market has to see what you see. And I'm glad that they're starting that dialogue now. I'm glad that this week when you read the comments, they're saying, well, it's fair for us to start to have the conversation this year about potentially decreasing or changing the amount of large-scale asset purchases. So I think that's something they'll work on. I don't know if they're going to do it this year. This is still a year of a lot of transition, even though we're optimistic. You just have to make sure we can bridge the side from the pandemic to a full recovery. But sometime next year, I think they'll start dialing it down. The other thing very important is how long do you leave rates at zero I think that's something they could afford to do for a bit longer. Right now, the summary of economic projections, the infamous dot plots are saying 2024, maybe probably by the end of 2023, the way things are going, they could begin to raise rates. It leaves us thinking with what is the right level of treasury yields? And this is now something that I accept, which I've never accepted in my career before, that I don't control the level of Treasury yields. The central banks do. The Fed in particular does. And for a long time after the pandemic first hit in March, April, May, June, they made sure that the 10-year hovered around five-eighths of a percent. They got a little worried when the 10-year was rallying because people would start talking about a flattening curve and then everyone's model increased the probability of recession. They didn't like that, so they allowed it to drift higher. And then when it got up towards seven-eighths of a percent, they came in with a lot of talk and rhetoric and talked it back down. Then they let it go to nine-tenths of a percent, and we were there for most of the fall. And it looks like we've just done the next step up to 120 basis points, and I expect now we'll start to hear from them that this is probably the right level for now. When we step back and look at it, the first stage of normal to us looks like one and a half to two percent on the 10 year treasury. And we had been talking about this when the 10 year was nine tenths of a percent and people thought we were insane. And we said, no, if you think about these emergency measures, sure, leave the Fed funds rate at zero, but the 10 year treasury at pick the midpoint of one and a half to two percent at one and three quarters percent. If inflation is still below their two percent target, if it's one and three quarters percent call it, that's a zero real yield. That's still incredibly rich and incredibly low on a historic basis. And then 
if we go back to the financial crisis, those first few years, 2011, 2012, 2013, the 10-year Treasury, with the Fed funds rate at zero, traded mostly between 1.6 and 1.9%. So I think we're on that journey again. I think as we get into the second half of the year, maybe even sooner, one and a half to two percent is where the 10-year will trade. If the journey is gradual, as it's been so far, the market won't get too rattled, and people will rationalize it away, saying, okay, you've got somewhere between minus one and a half to minus two percent Fed funds rate, and you've got a real yield on the 10-year that's either side of zero. That's very accommodative. Now, let's just see where the tapering begins and ends and the pace of that, and then start to model when the Fed can start to raise rates again. So I think it's a very complicated question you asked, but it's essential to understanding what the market's going to look like over the coming year, because the Fed is pulling all the levers. Absolutely. And as we look forward, what are the long-term effects of the economic scarring? Does it change how we think about investing in certain sectors? What are the structural changes that you think are here to stay? Everyone talks about the long-term scarring to the economy and the changes that we'll see in services and will it create the permanent damage and will the U.S. ever recover? You know, as many people on this call know, I started in the business in 1981. And back then, the debate was, should you own any of these consumer-oriented stocks? And the thought was, no, never. The U.S. is still a manufacturing-based economy. It will find a way to compete with Japan on manufacturing, but there's no way the U.S. economy can survive as just a consumer-oriented economy. And then here we are, you know, 40-odd years later, And we had transitioned to something that's more services and consumer-oriented. So I've lived through this before. I think others have lived through it. And we just accept that there was already a change underway. And what the pandemic did is it accelerated the trend to digitalization. So, you know, remote working and how you meet will change Forever, But we were probably already headed in that direction. And then there will be certain parts of the market. I think, you know, everyone knows travel, leisure, retail. Those things will probably change. And when you step back and look at it, retail was already beginning to change. There was already a lot of discussion about online purchases and the size of Amazon and so on. So the change in storefronts and malls and the whole retail space will surely change. I think travel certainly gets hit, and I think a lot of the airlines are going to have to change the way their profit model works to account for less business travel. And then, you know, as part of that, you've got the hotel space. And since we're large real estate investors, both lenders through J.P. Morgan Chase, through our own real estate investment in the securitized market, and then what asset management does in equity property ownership, we've already been seeing that the U.S. and a lot of places in general were over-hoteled. So some of that capacity would have to come off anyway. So I step back and look at this, and I think back in April, May, June, it looked pretty bleak. Everyone was quite concerned about the scarring. 
we've got all this stimulus. You realize that in the interim, the U.S. has 330 million people they'll spend on something, and a lot of it's been electronic and the sort of work remotely, stay-at-home kind of models. But a lot of that was underway already, and this has just accelerated that. So I don't think the scarring will be as bad as everyone envisaged. You mentioned real estate and working remotely. The GFIC platform has a long history of focusing on securitized markets, not only in core portfolios, but also in income-oriented and liability hedging portfolios that need high-quality assets as surrogates to corporate credit. What do you think about the opportunities there? CMBS would seem to be facing a lot of uncertainty. How do you see the real estate sector playing out in the future if employees continue working from home? Yeah, well, I think in the way you framed that question, you make an excellent point. And the question that we get from so many of our clients is that they feel over-allocated to corporate credit. And while it's paid off terrifically, are there other things that they should be doing? Where should they be looking to pick up high-quality yield? And we step back and we look at a number of places. First and foremost, are in the securitized market because you get a different risk profile. And the risk profile has to come down with, yes, there's a loan at the end of it, but the origination of the loan is done largely between a consumer and a high-quality originator, we have to research that. Then we have to look at the structure of the transaction and are we comfortable with the way the structure and the cash flows work. And then we look at the credit enhancement, and that's something you don't get in corporate credit, where when you look at credit enhancement, if it builds and it's efficient enough, you can weather a pretty big downturn in credit or something like, you know, a quasi-depression, which is what we went through. So almost every client in this space can access these markets. For a lot of the corporate cash we talk to, the high-quality, short-duration asset-backed market is a great place to be. And and for some of the longer-duration plan sponsors that are out there, we've done things like originating commercial mortgage loans for them, which have very high credit quality, they're very property-specific, and they have the longer duration that those plans need. So I think it's still a terrific place to be where there's still yield and opportunity. Great. Thank you. When you look at the global fixed income opportunity set, are there any other areas where you're overweight today and where would you look to invest your next dollar? So there are a number of areas that we do like. We like corporate credit. You've got these tailwinds. The worst is behind us. Credit fundamentals are only going to continue to improve. Sure, I'd like to buy high yield at 8%. I can't. I've got to buy it at under 6%. I'd like to buy investment-grade credit at 4 or 5%. I can't. I have to buy it at less than 2%. But what I do know is credit quality will continue to improve. All those tailwinds are going to be powerful for credit risk. I want to be a part of that. And you know, we're starting to pick around a bit in the investment-grade space. We like banks. I think everyone six months ago was concerned about the quality of bank loan portfolios. 
I think everyone's now more comfortable, and they see as the yield curve has steepened, bank profitability has gone up, and there's opportunity going down in structure to the additional tier one, lower tier two, or preferred parts of the bank capital structure. And then there are things that we're buying in high yield. More broadly, we think the credit cycle will start to turn and you'll see some upgrades. So that's one place. The second place where we've been starting to grow our allocation is to local emerging market debt. A number of things are attractive there. Real yields are still relatively high. The aggregate policy response we've seen, both fiscal and monetary combined with the healthcare response, have been very positive. So that should be a very good tailwind to the currencies, particularly from a global reopening and some of the reflation. And we talked a little bit about the securitized market. So those are the places we're going to, and the places that we're avoiding are the treasury market, where we'll let the Fed own those bonds. We've seen a big run-up in risk markets since March and have also seen funded statuses for corporate defined benefit pensions improve in Q4. With equity valuations where they are, do you anticipate rebalancing or broader reallocations to fixed income? Yeah, I think that's the big question. And I feel like this month it's a little bit too early. I think if we're right and the 10-year settles in the one5 to 2% range and the acceleration and equity price appreciation starts to flatten out a bit, to us, that would be an optimal time to make a shift. And look, it's going to be painful. I know no one's going to hit their 6 or 7% return target, but we've seen this so many times in the past. And so when I think about today, personally, I would encourage plans to hang on for a bit. But back end of the year, I think with slightly higher rates and you know fuller equity prices, that would make sense. And I think a lot of the clients are there. The problem is that greed has a way of replacing fear, and people will have to remember that the party's over when the Fed begins to raise rates. And once the Fed begins to raise rates, and it could be the end of 2023, it could be 2024, then they're leaning into growth and inflation. Whatever asset class you're looking at, its discount rate will rise, making that asset look increasingly expensive. And we've seen this time and time again. Those markets will start to correct, and then the government bond market will start to rally in the long end again, and there will be a lot of pain out there. So I think there are enough institutional managers out there that have seen this movie before. They'll get it right this time. So we're not seeing a lot of rotation now, but I would expect that to happen. Some of the things we are seeing is where there are contributions to plans rather than put it into longer duration assets. Short duration funds are seeing a lot of flow. So our short duration core plus and core products are starting to see a lot of flows and it seems to be an interim parking spot waiting for things to play out further. Great, thank you. Shifting gears a bit, I wanted to spend a minute or two talking about stress testing. Can you talk a little bit about how we think about stress testing and what we did in 2020? What type of new stress tests are being designed to reflect the macro and policy environment in 2021? Yeah, so 
stress testing has been incredibly important to us. There is an independent parallel risk group which looks over our portfolios and then runs their own variety of tests on them just to make sure that we understand that the risks we have are intended and not unintended, right? You are trying to create tracking error in your portfolios. Your hope it will pay off, and this helps with this parallel stream of risk oversight for us to gauge that. Let's go back to the securitized market. I think that was particularly interesting. When we came into this year, oddly enough, we weren't as concerned about a potential as we came into 2020, sorry, not 2021, we weren't as concerned about a potential pandemic as we were the impact from a trade war. And we were thinking, well, if this trade war continues and it doesn't de-escalate, we're already seeing companies talk about cutting expenses, which means laying people off, which means unemployment starts to rise. I thought, okay, where do we have some of our biggest risks? And it was in our portfolio of securitized holdings because a lot of them are oriented to consumer loans, whether they're housing, credit cards, or auto or just outright consumer loans. We owned a lot of them. So in January, I went to our risk group, and we've got one embedded in fixed income that works with the portfolio managers and tracks the risk on a daily basis. But I wanted them to run a stress test through different scenarios of recession and see how our portfolios would hold up. And they ran through them. And I was concerned because we own things like subprime autos and we'll come back to that. And they ran through them and they came back saying, okay, there's in your most severe stress test, which was similar to the financial crisis, the amount of damage in the portfolios is minor. And that told me that we bought deals where the loans were originated at very tight lending standards, that the deals were well-structured, and the credit enhancements had built. So, great. Now we get into mid-March, and suddenly things are shutting down. Everyone's now modeling unemployment rates going up to the double digits. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, the base case (laughs) stress just seems unrealistic. That would be optimistic. And using the financial crisis also seems optimistic. So went back to our risk group and had them double the stress test for both corporate credit and our securitized holdings. And I was sure, and I was talking to our portfolio managers and the securitized team, I'm worried about subprime autos, and they kept saying, Bob, don't worry. The credit enhancement is big. The deals are well-structured. I'm like, yeah, but subprime, everyone knows what subprime is. And I had gone through all the stress tests before. I watched deals as they were bought, and the risk committee came back, and we turned it around in less than two days, about a day and a half, which is interesting because there were over 5,000 unique QCIP numbers of securitized holdings we had. And guess what? Some of them became impaired, but not a lot of them. And places that I thought we would see the most damage, which were, of course, subprime, just because they're subprime, and they actually 
were the strongest because of the significant amount of credit enhancement that was built. So, in fact, in my year-end blog, I gave an award to subprime autos for all the credit enhancement in them. But long story short, we constantly stress the portfolio. We're trying to break it. We're trying to see what's working, what's not working. We're trying to see where the risks are. The market in periods of dislocation does a very poor job of pricing it correctly. We were able to rotate some positions around in April and May out of securities where the credit enhancement was a little thinner than we had thought into other securities at effectively the same price and yield levels, which had much better levels of credit enhancement in place. The other thing that was very important is we were looking through the Chase data. And, of course, Chase is the largest combined lender to the auto, credit card, and housing markets. And once the CARES Act was enacted, we started to see real-time that consumer loans were being serviced at even a better rate than before the pandemic. So we realized that the enhanced unemployment benefits were very generous. And this was a couple months before the studies, I think out of Northwestern or University of Chicago came out to indicate that 75% of the recipients of those enhanced unemployment benefits were actually making more than they did at their job. But we saw that real time. We were able to go back, look at our securitized holdings, look at our stress tests, and then start to add in areas where we felt was the best value. So that's not something that's going to change. As we head into this year, I think the focus has to shift to corporate credit and ensuring that KHER and the credit analysts continue to drill way down into the credit quality of corporate borrowers domestically and internationally and think of them through different cycles and through different stresses because we can no longer rely on the rating agencies. And I don't know if people remember, but the rating agencies have effectively taken a buy on rating credit. And you go back to the aftermath of the pandemic, they indicated that until they saw how companies started to bounce back, this was such a one-off event, they were effectively holding credit rating static. So to us, there are a lot of credit ratings that are stale across corporate borrowers, U.S. and internationally, and that's where we have to really sharpen our focus and rely on our own credit research. And if we see something or our instinct tells us something's at risk, then have our independent risk team start to stress them. I did have one more for you, Bob. Our annual bond market awards were published on our GFIG blog recently. ESG won the award for most valuable player, and it's certainly been a key focus for clients recently. Has COVID changed how we think about ESG and sustainable investing? So there's a huge yes and no to that one. And, and actually, on Friday, I'm doing our fixed income platform business review with Jamie Diamond and how we continue to grow and accelerate our strategies in sustainable investing is at the top of the list of things we're going to talk about. When I step back and think about 
ESG investing. And maybe in the bond markets, we see it differently. I go back to 2002, 2003, during the era of corporate malfeasance, where you had WorldCom and Enron and Parmalat. And that was, you know, that's something almost 20 years ago that corporate bond investors began to realize that governance is an incredibly important part of lending money to a borrower. And after all, that's what we do as bond investors. We're lending our clients money to borrowers. So we learned that early on. Then we've seen, you know, in the last couple of years, as oil's come under pressure, a lot of the fossil fuel-oriented companies, oil and gas, were starting to come under pressure themselves. And there was an enormous differentiation in returns there. So I think it's been in play for a while. And I think it's the future. The markets ultimately match the biases of the population. And it's clear that the millennials and the surrounding generations are going to want to ensure that they're investing sustainably. Let's just fast forward to what's happened with Congress and our government. You've got a Biden administration coming in. You've got now the Democrats controlling the House and the Senate. Some of our conversations that we've had with the party in the last couple of days, it's incredible how high on the list sustainability is. Every time there's mention of an infrastructure spend, and that's something they'd love to get through and think there can be some bipartisan support for it, there's without fail, every single conversation has a sustainability component to it. When the talk turns to, will there be a round of tax reform? And I think the Biden plan has been clear that corporate taxes are going back up and ordinary income taxes are going back up, you know, for wage earners over 400,000. And there's an array of other taxes in there, but there's a lot of talk of a carbon tax or tax credits for green investing. And I think, again, long story short, this is so in the early stages, it's only going to accelerate. And a lot of corporate America is either going to face a headwind or have a tailwind, depending on how they position their company, how green they become. And we as investors and lenders of our clients' money are going to go with those that have a sustainability agenda and can demonstrate that they're green. And as I said, you know, that's a discussion that I'm going to have with Jamie on Friday because we're only looking to advance that more quickly. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice.
All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy this communication is issued by the following entities in the united states by jp morgan investment management inc or jp morgan alternative asset management inc both regulated by the securities and exchange commission in latin america for intended recipients use only by local jp morgan entities as the case may be in canada for institutional clients use only by jp morgan asset management canada inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 JP Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.